morning. We're going to spend a little bit of time uh, in the book of Job. We've been working through uh, selections from the book of Job this morning. And I invite you uh, to open your Bibles to Job chapter 11 today, which is page 423 if you're using the Bible in the rack in front of you. This morning we have heard stories of both tragedy and hope, Uh, stories of lives that have been completely unraveled and by God's grace are slowly being put back together. And this morning we have prayed for many stories of suffering and sorrow right here in our congregation. You know, David's accident this week, um, you know, if you heard what happened falling 20 feet down an elevator shaft. Um, Garrett's diagnosis this week. Uh, Gary's rapid decline. It seems like everywhere you look, we're faced with reminders that this world is broken and that God's children are not immune from that brokenness. The book of Job that we've been looking at in August has helped us take a pretty honest and candid look at how to suffer with both faith and honesty. Faith that recognizes that God is worthy of our worship, whether we receive blessing or disaster from his hand. And honesty that realizes that God does not silence our cries of despair or expect us just to put a good face on it, but he invites us to be real with him. There's another thing that this book helps us do, as we'll see this morning, and that's to consider carefully how we think about the suffering of others. How we think about the suffering of others. When someone else's world falls apart, it's hard to know what to do or what to say. Uh, And so some of us simply don't do or say anything. We just don't know. Uh, Some of us rush in and try to fix the situation. Some of us offer well-meaning platitudes that, that kind of end up ringing hollow. Some of us try and explain or interpret the events for the person. Most of us mean well, even if it doesn't always come across that way. But even harder than knowing what to do or what to say can be knowing what to think about the tragedy you're watching unfold. Did this person somehow bring this on themselves? Is it their own fault? Is God trying to get their attention? Do they deserve what they're going through? Or are they a victim of some injustice? And even if they're a victim, did they do something to kind of attract attention or invite scorn? So there's this subtle temptation to look down on someone else in their suffering. Or as Job puts it in chapter 13, verse 5, to show contempt for misfortune. To look at someone's outward situation and then make conclusions based on that about the condition of their heart. We think we know what's going on inside them by looking at 
the tragedy around them. That's what Job's friends do in their attempt to comfort him in his suffering. And underneath that temptation is a question that's raised here in this passage and is carried on throughout the entire section where Job and his friends are are talking. It's the question, can the righteous suffer? It's one of the questions the book of Job forces us to, to wrestle with. Can the righteous suffer? Or is suffering always the result of some sin? Now, we meet Job's friends at the end of chapter 2, and their conversation with Job takes up most of this book, from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 31, and if you include Elihu in that, all the way to chapter 37. So the most of the book of Job is this kind of back and forth wrestling with this question, and and to be honest, we have to, we have to give credit where credit's due. His friends start off really well. They start off really well. Chapters 1 and 2 set up the story of Job. If you're not familiar with it, uh, Job is this righteous man uh, whose entire life falls apart. And, and we know because of the narrator things that Job doesn't know. That, that the tragedy that has befallen him, the loss of his entire fortune and family, was a test of the integrity of his faith. Satan had accused him before God that the only reason Job was so righteous and holy is because of what he got out of it, because of what God gave him. And so if you remove your protection and you take away all his stuff, he will curse you to your face. And so God does, twice. He strikes Job, and though he was completely undone, in both instances, Job retains his integrity. He grieves deeply, but he does not curse God. He worships the God who both gives and takes away. And so when news of that tragedy finally reaches his friends, they literally drop everything and travel to go and be with him. And they sit there with him, grieving, tearing their robes, uh, making his suffering their suffering. For seven days, they sit there in silence with him. I mean, imagine taking a week off of work to go and be with a friend in their grief and devastation. That, that's no small sacrifice. And so they start off great. So what goes wrong? Well, in short, when Job finally opens his mouth in chapter 3, they don't hear from him what they expected to hear from him. What Job says, as we saw last week when we looked at that chapter, is how he wishes that he had never been born or that God would let him die rather than face the kind of suffering and misery that has come upon him. He doesn't curse God, but he does complain about the situation. He's devastated. What his friends expected him to say, however, was some sort of confession of what he had done wrong to bring such unspeakable tragedy on himself. That's what they were looking for. They assumed, based on Job's situation, that his suffering was a result of sin. And so where does that kind of assumption come from? That sounds 
little weird. If you asked Job's friends where this assumption comes from, they would probably say what we call common sense or what they called wisdom. This is just how the world works. This is how God works. As Eliphaz says to Job in chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, remember who that was innocent ever perished? Or, or where were the upright cut off? Bad things don't happen to righteous people. That's how the world works. As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So if you're suffering, it's because you've done something wrong, plain and simple. And, and so rather than complain, Job, you should own it. You should confess it. You should should uh, bring it to God and, and, and confess it and let him start putting your life back together. Their answer to the question of whether or not the righteous can suffer is a resounding no. And so for Job to insist upon his innocence that he hasn't really done anything wrong to bring about this tragedy, that is for Job to accuse God of doing something God doesn't do causing the righteous to suffer. That, that would be unjust of him to do it. That is common sense, according to the friends. And so as, as harsh as Job's friends seem throughout this section, from their vantage, they're defending God's reputation against the dangerous and self-deluded musings of Job. And that's what we find when we come to chapter 11 in Zophar's first speech to Job. And his other two friends, uh, great names. If you're looking for names to name your kids, I would steer clear of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, but they're there. Um, but Job, the, the other two friends have already had a turn, have already had their crack at Job, and Job has already responded to both of them. In each case, maintaining his innocence and, and continuing to lament his misery. And, and Zophar has sat there so far, and all of this is just too much for him to take. And so, in verse 2, he, he bursts out. Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? I can't sit back and listen to you go on and on, Job, saying such stupid things. I have to jump in. For you say you're, that my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Zophar sits there. As far as he's concerned, Job is mocking God when he maintains his innocence. And, and he just wishes God would open up and let him have it. But if God won't, Zophar will. He continues in verse 6. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. I mean, talk about a punch to the gut. I mean, all of your tragic loss... Your livelihood, your fortune, your ten children. You know what? You deserve a whole lot worse. That's what Zophar is saying. And he asserts this because he's convinced that he has the wisdom necessary to interpret Job's problem. He has 
inside information, wisdom, in order to be able to speak for God. And so he continues in verse 7, criticizing Job's foolish, his foolishness. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Is it higher than heaven? What can you do? Deeper than Sheol? What can you even know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? You know, God's wisdom, God's power is beyond your ability to nail him down, Job. And what Zophar says there is actually pretty decent theology. That stuff is true about God. His wisdom is beyond us. His power is above us. It's not very different than what God himself will say when he finally speaks in chapter 38. But the problem is that Zophar assumes that while Job cannot find out the deep things of God, he already has. And armed with that knowledge, he condemns Job. And he gets nasty in verses 11 and 12. For God knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? He knows what he sees when he looks at you. But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. If you're trying to figure out what he says, that was an insult. He's calling him as stupid as a donkey for not understanding what is so plain to Zophar. But he's not entirely heartless. Based on his diagnosis of Job's situation, he offers a prescription. Repent and God will restore you. Verse 13. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. For surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and you will not fear. You'll forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. If you will just own what you did wrong and repent, God will put your life back together. But if you ignore my prescription, you do so to your own peril. Verse 20. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them, and their hope is to breathe their last. That's all. That's the only escape they've got is just to, to curl up and die. And so Zophar and his friends assume, based on, on theology that's not always necessarily wrong, but they assume because God promises to reward the righteous and punish the wicked, then if someone is suffering, they must have done something wicked. They don't ask Job what he did or or how he's doing. They don't try to understand. His outward situation tells them everything they need to know about the cause of his suffering and the condition of his heart. All they need to do is look at the tragedy and they can connect the dots. Job has sinned. And so what is wrong with this kind of counsel to a friend who's suffering? Hopefully the answer is somewhat obvious, but just in case, uh, Job has a few things to say in response. 
he points out three problems with his friend's medical diagnosis and prescription, the tactics. Uh, He points out three problems with it before then offering his own solution to the matter. Their false monopoly on wisdom, their flawed system for understanding suffering, and their foolish assumption that they speak for God. And so he begins by challenging Zophar's false monopoly on wisdom in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Look at verse 1 with me. Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. If you were ever curious whether there was sarcasm in the Bible, there's your answer. I mean, I guess you speak for everyone, don't you? And, and, and you are the epitome of wisdom right here. But Job continues. Verse 3. I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? He makes a similar point in chapter 13, verses 1 to 2. Behold, my eye has seen all of this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. You do not have a monopoly on wisdom. We all know that this is how life is supposed to work. That good things should happen when you're doing good and bad things, you know, to, to those who do wrong. We know that's how life is supposed to work. But apparently some things can't be explained by conventional wisdom. And I'm the case in point. And so second, he criticizes their flawed system for understanding suffering. And there are three things wrong with it. First, their system, their grid for interpreting what goes wrong and why with someone else, their grid is inconsistent. They think they've got God figured out, but their system cannot account for Job's suffering. Chapter 12, verse 4. I am a laughing stock to my friends, Job says. I, who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughing stock. That doesn't make sense. Meanwhile, verse 6, the tents of the robbers are at peace. And those who provoke God are secure. Who bring their God in their hand. And, and, and so... I'm innocent and suffering. They're guilty and they've got it well. This doesn't make sense. So, so how, did, how can Job's friends not miss that observation? Well, he tells us in verse 5, really the heart of the problem. In the thought of the one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. Because of their system, their uh, understanding that that the righteous prosper and the wicked always suffer. Because of that system, they are eager to show contempt to others when they slip. They show contempt, scorn for misfortune. If you're suffering, you must have done something wrong and we're ready to point it out. But Job says, if the righteous never suffer, that means the wicked should never prosper. And yet, here I am, an innocent laughing stock, and there they are laughing all the way to the bank. Something isn't working in your 
version of wisdom. And so their wisdom is inconsistent. Second, it's also inept. Because what Job is observing isn't really that hard to grasp. Verse 7, But ask the beasts, the animals, they will teach you. The birds of the heavens, they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. The fish of the sea will declare to you. Everybody else can see this except for you. And what is it they can see? Who among all of these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? That, that the cause of my suffering is God himself. He has brought this on me. It's not something I did. If God is sovereign and I'm innocent, there's only one explanation for that cause. It's obvious. How else can you explain it? Verse 10. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. No one can overpower God. No one can go slip behind his back and bring about harm as though he didn't know what happened. If I'm suffering through no fault of my own, this is from God. That's the only explanation. And it's important to understand here that Job is not accusing God of doing wrong. He's simply explaining to the best of his understanding how God works, that, that he punishes both the righteous and the wicked. He's already accepted the fact that the Lord is worthy of worship, whether he gives or takes away, whether he, we receive blessing or disaster from his hand. We saw that in, in chapters 1 and 2. And so that God can bring about suffering on the righteous, that's what Job is affirming, and that's what his friends don't have a category for. How could God do something like that? But wisdom is on Job's side. If you test his theory against the evidence in life, like, like the ear tests words, as Job puts it, or like the tongue tests food, if you test Job's theory, you'll find that it rings true. The righteous really can suffer, which means that his friend's system's not only inept and inconsistent, it's ultimately ignorant of the true ways of God. In verses 13 to 25, Job gives his own account of God's wisdom, a wisdom that shows itself in God's absolute sovereignty, verses 13 to 15, and in his inscrutable ways, verses 16 to 25. So, so if God tears down, verse 14, none can rebuild. Nobody's going to undo God's work. No one has authority or power to do that. He's sovereign. But there's no real predictable pattern for whom he will tear down. He leads counselors away stripped, and he makes judges fools, verse 17. And it's not necessarily because they've done something wrong. We don't always know why God brings suffering, but what we do know is that you cannot predict it based on someone's outward circumstance. You can't figure out what's going in their heart simply looking at the tragedy around them. That's Job's wisdom. And then finally, the third problem with his friends is their foolish assumption that they speak for God. So they have a false monopoly on wisdom they they have uh how did i put it the uh 
flawed system for understanding suffering. And finally, they have a foolish assumption that they speak for God. And this is what Job rebukes in chapter 13, verses 4 to 12. Basically accusing them of spiritual malpractice. Verse 4. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Verse 7. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for Him? Will you show partiality toward Him? Will you plead the case for God? I mean, Zophar and his friends think they're doing God a favor by condemning Job. Job warns them if they keep this up, they're the ones who are in danger of condemnation. And so what we see here in in Zophar's example and Job's response is basically how not to offer comfort to someone whose life falls apart. This is a good example of what not to do, to assume we're the only ones with the privileged perspective to explain it, to have this false monopoly on wisdom, this flawed system of explanation, and foolishly assume that we speak for God. But the tricky part is, when you stop and think about it, how often we actually do that kind of stuff? How often that when we see someone's situation, we're drawing conclusions in our head about the condition of their heart based on what we observe? And, and assuming that those conclusions we're drawing are conclusions that line up perfectly with God. You know, Maybe not so much with, with an illness or an accident or something like that. Maybe not so much with our closest friends. I mean, and unless you've bought into the, the false gospel of health and wealth where, where the only reason you're suffering is because you don't have enough faith in God, you're probably not going to accuse somebody's cancer diagnosis of being their own fault. We, we don't usually act that way. But what about when their business falls apart? Or when their kids get in trouble? Or when their marriage falls apart? What conclusions do we draw when we look at tragedies from afar? Or even on a, on, a, on a massive scale, you know, the kind of stuff we watch unfolding on the news. What conclusions am I drawing in my heart when I read another article about refugees from Syria or another police shooting or natural disasters and, and, and you know, all of the different things? What's going on in my heart? Do do I, am I who am at ease showing contempt for misfortune? Eager to mix a little bit of condemnation in with my compassion. And I think part of the reason is we feel some sort of need to explain tragedy. We need to find someone to blame when things don't go right. But we have to ask ourselves, why? Is that coming from compassion or a need to try and be in control? Why are we so quick to judge when we don't know the circumstances? So it's a good gut check when we think about the suffering of others. God is the one who's in control. And only God is the one who's able to make sense of our suffering. Or someone else's suffering. And so we should be not too quick to assume we've got him figured out. 
But where does all of this leave Job? Where does all of this leave Job, this conversation, these accusations? Well, in chapter 13, he's pretty much done answering his friends, if he could be. He's got to answer them many times over as the book continues. But if they want to show their wisdom, his suggestion is to keep their mouths shut. Chapter 13, verses 5 and 13. What Job really wants as he tells us in 13.3, what he really thinks is the only way forward in his situation is an audience with God. But I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue my case with God. There's only one person who can ultimately figure this out and settle it. And he's the one who doesn't seem to be saying anything at all. And if you think about it, This is kind of a risky maneuver for Job because the God to whom he appeals is the same God who brought this calamity on him in the first place. But where else does he turn? If Job is to be vindicated, if he's to find any relief from his suffering, there's only one person who has those answers and the power to do that. The same one who brought the affliction in the first place. And so approaching God, who who is worthy of our worship, whether we receive blessing or disaster from his hand, Job decides, this is a risk I really have to take. And he, he puts it this way in verse 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways before his face. God may continue to deal harshly with me for reasons that I cannot understand. But I have nowhere else to turn but to him. He is my hope. He's the only one who can sort this out. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. What Job needs is not the criticism of his friends, but the presence of his God. And so if you want to be of comfort when others are hurting, don't worry so much about trying to fix things or trying to explain them, even less about trying to score a point. If you want to be a friend, point them to God. That's our greatest need in the face of suffering, an audience with our God. So pray for them. Pray with them. Be willing to sit in silence. Read scripture, but point them to God. He's the only one who can make sense of our suffering, and so we must hope in him. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll always get an answer right away. Job does not get an answer from God in chapter 13, or chapter 14, or 15. He doesn't get an answer from God until chapter 38. There are many dark nights ahead for Job. And even when he finally gets his audience with God, as we're going to see next week, the answers that he gets are not the ones he was looking for. But God will answer Job, and he will answer us. In fact, he has already begun to answer us in the most profound way through the cross of Jesus Christ. If you want to be a friend in suffering, take them 
to the cross. Every human sorrow and tragedy that this world has known is either a precursor or an echo of the greatest tragedy that this world has ever seen. The cross of Jesus Christ. There, Jesus took Job's suffering and our suffering, and he made it his suffering. There, he took our sin and everything that we've done wrong, and he made it his sin. He paid for it by giving his life in our place that we might be forgiven and set free. A freedom that we experience in part now, but will experience, full, will experience fully and forever when Christ returns. So often, we try to make sense of our suffering by looking backward for some cause, some connection between our past sin and our present misery. That's what Job's friends have been after. But when we do that, we will almost always walk away scratching our heads. And sometimes it's clear. Sometimes it's clear, but often it's not. But when we look to God, and when He finally answers us, what we often find is that instead of pointing us back, He points us forward. Not to the cause of suffering, but to its result. And that's where He helps us make the most sense of it. Not who to blame, but what God is doing through it, making us more like Christ. That's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4, that though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Hard to imagine describing what Job experienced as slight or momentary. But if you take it and you put it into the perspective of where God is going with this, not just at the end of the book, but at the end of all time, that's what it is. A slight momentary affliction that is preparing him for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as he reflects fully and beautifully the image of Christ. So how do we think about the suffering of others? Are we eager to mix our comfort with a little condemnation? To feel good about ourselves by weighing in on the situation? Drawing conclusions about someone's heart based on the suffering that surrounds them? Or do we point them to God? Do we weep with those who weep? And point them to the one, the only one who can make sense of their sorrow. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we confess that we think we know far more than we do. We confess, Lord, that there are times where we think we've got you figured out and we're eager to tell others how you work. 
And God, we praise you that you have made yourself known, your ways, your wisdom, your love through your word and through Jesus, your son. That, that we can know who you are and how you work and what you do. But Lord, keep us humble. Remind us what you're about to remind Job next week. That you are God and we are not. Keep us humble and eager to comfort, not condemn. And Lord, meet us in our own sorrow, whatever the case is, whatever the suffering we face. May we have the courage to go to you, the only one who can do anything about it, and to know that even though we can't make sense of it, you can, and that there will come an answer someday. And on the other side of it, we'll look more like Christ. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.